Hey. Yeah, you, over here. Listen up. Want to hear a joke? What was that? You mostly want to learn about Wall Street? Fine. All you had to do was ask. But let's test this joke out first. See how funny it is. So yesterday I called up my father to check in on him. Turns out he's doing great. He'd just gone to the most amazing restaurant. It was incredible. He was taken to the best table in the room. The service was fantastic. The food was phenomenal. The chef came out to see how they liked everything, and then the manager comped them dessert wines. The whole evening was the best night out in years. So I asked him, what was the name of the restaurant? And he says he can't remember. I say, oi, what do you mean you can't remember? This was the best place you've ever eaten. I want to take our wives there. How is it possible you don't know the name of it? And he says, hmm, what's the name of that flower? The red one? The one with thorns, it smells good? Uh, that you give on Valentine's Day? Um, a rose? That's right. Hey, Rose, where did we go last night? That was how I met my first mentor on Wall Street. He was not a sociopath. He was just straight. A man of integrity, determined to do the best for his family, and convinced that working in finance was only going to be as difficult as anyone wanted to make it. At the turn of the century, there was very little automation on trading desks. Technology was a timestamp if you liked compliance, which we most definitely did not. Perhaps an Excel file for a daily P&L. There was a couple of holdouts on email back then. Some of us were employed just to roll contracts on a Bloomberg screen. On the other hand, my mentor had recently onboarded a new system called Instanet. This made him a little like the wizard of buy-side traders. Instead of calling up Credit Suisse or DLJ or any of the big banks, he would just enter his order and peg it to the market. This was the very first of what are now commonly known as algos, systems where you are assured to get a low cost and, more importantly, swift execution with the confidence to be able to report the price out to the fourth decimal place. Nowadays, if you relayed the price of a trade in fractions, you'd probably be considered a genius. Back then, report something in decimals and you'd sound so smart that no one would question the quality of the execution. When my mentor pegged an order to the bid or offer, he avoided doing what is known as crossing the spread. The spread is the difference between where you can buy or sell something. Spreads can sometimes be quite wide. If you have a 1% spread, that means you will lose at least half a percent buying. And the same again when you sell it. Think about that. If you started off that far in the hole on an investment, should you really be making it in the first place? It didn't matter, though, because stocks only went up. Whatever the case, on this particular day, I'm sitting with my mentor learning how to use Instanet, and he asks me to grab his personal stock portfolio, or PA, off the fax machine. The old school guys used to trade their PA a lot. In some ways, the senior traders thought of their job here as more of a seat to invest their own money rather than to facilitate the trades of the fund itself. Rather comically, the PAs were so extensive that the facts would sometimes run paper all the way from the desk down to the floor before clunking to a stop. So I hopped over to the machine, tore off my mentor's portfolio, and brought it over to him. He looked at it with some confusion, at first thinking I'd brought the wrong set of stock symbols over. Then his eyes are drawn to his name at the top, and he realizes he doesn't actually have a clue about these companies. 
One of his stocks, Open Text, is up 200% on loose talk that they might be used by AOL Instant Messenger. So he decides to sell them all. Calls out his broker Jeff to bang out all of them on the bid. Then he rolled the cash into Long Island real estate and municipal bonds. Everyone laughs at this and teases him relentlessly. Bonds and real estate were for suckers. And sure enough, the market continued to rise, laughing in the face of Greenspan's admonitions and rate hikes. Even I opened up a Daytech account and bought some WorldCom. My mentor walks into the office to daily abuse from the rest of the room while they count their unhatched chickens. He keeps his peace and continues acquiring real estate and tax-free munis. In short order, the Nasdaq took a dirt nap. Every trader's PA was restricted, and they watched helplessly as their savings evaporated. It's a complete fiasco. On top of that, everyone gets fired. Fortunately, no one really knows I'm here. Being poor is useful for something. My mentor takes a sabbatical of sorts and then is soon back on the trading desk, teaching me how to move blocks and, more importantly, manage relationships on the street. One of the most interesting things I learned from him was that all the hot women were in the software space. Those were the conferences he wanted to attend. Semis, on the other hand, were a total cockfest. This was because software was a licensing business rather than subscriptions like today. Clients knew they could hold out until the end of the quarter and try to get a discount, so software quarters were back-end loaded. Management might say 60% of their sales came in the last month, but it was really like 90% on the last day. That was an art, not science. If you were an attractive woman, you didn't have to be good at science. By comparison, analyzing the semi-space was widgets and math. The Nasdaq crash took out both semiconductors and software, along with the silliest internet names. Meanwhile, there was a dead cat bounce in what was known as photonics. We didn't know exactly what photonics were, and admittedly, still don't. But on a whim, my mentor suggested a conference at the Waldorf to see what sort of people went to something like that. This was several months after the Nasdaq peaked, but the biggest name in the space, JDS Uniphase, was on a tear so the hotel was packed. Sometimes you go to a conference and they have these big round tables that make conversation impossible. This wasn't that sort of conference. Standing room only. The fire department had to be called multiple times. It was more like a rock concert. I reverted to form and became friends with the bartender. Then I meet someone who works in investor relations at a company called SDLI. After a few drinks, we seem to like each other better, and she asks, what do I do for a living? I'm non-committal. I don't really fit in on Wall Street anyway, so I let her do most of the talking. My experience is that most women in New York just want to listen to the sound of their own voice anyway. She talks a little about SDLI and then quickly moves on to how much she hates dealing with hedge funds. The only person who is remotely decent to deal with is, ironically given his reputation, Stevie Cohen from SAC. This was because he didn't really know the details couldn't have given a shit about him. The problem at his shop was just inadequate supervision. Guys like Raj from Galleon, on the other hand, couldn't go five minutes without bragging about some inside information they had, and were always trying to get something out of you as well. Everyone knew SAC back then. So I ask her which suit in the crowd is Stevie Cohen. Turns out he's a rumpled little guy with bad teeth, who looks a bit like an accountant. Hardly anyone's impression of a master of the universe. I make a mental note to drop a shoulder into him later in the night. 
I didn't need to ask about Raj, because I used to follow cricket, and this guy couldn't look more Sri Lankan if he tried. Friendly as could be, and all teeth when he smiles, which he did all the time. My new friend has been avoiding him because she has a secret about her company, SDLI. The company is in play, and it's like Raj can smell it on her. He's trailing around the room in tightening circles, so she needs to get out of here. I stop and take a second look at my new best friend. She has blonde hair and a reasonably symmetrical face, so I tell her I know a restaurant in the meatpacking district we can go to. A classy little number on the corner of 9th and Gansevoort. Not pasties. She looks at me in confusion, because the only other places to go down there were the hog pit and manhole. The hog pit was a shithole with a sunken bar, and every type of creature dwelled inside. It had an undeniably strange attraction. Matthew McConaughey went there once, tripping his face off, and didn't leave for a week. Also, mounds of bras collecting dust on the wall. Just heaps of them hanging there. And manhole? Well, let's just say it was easy to get a drink at that place. Her eyes light up in excitement to be going somewhere new, breaking the tedium of the work week. I've hooked a live one. We turn to leave and bump right into my mentor. He's surrounded by investment bankers from at least five shops. He knows they're friends with his seat and not with him, but doesn't take that sort of stuff too seriously, as long as someone else is paying for the drinks. Our eyes meet, and he loudly asks me where I think I'm going. I say we're heading downtown to my local, and they should all come with us. I inform the gathering crowd that they'll have peanuts in the shell, cheap red wine, and a jukebox. It's a place that somehow remained obscured in plain sight, even as the neighborhood gentrified. Because sometimes in this flashy city... It's nice to go to the kind of place that actually feels real. I lifted those lines from a New York Times review, but my mentor says he's in, and then SDLI girl touches my arm encouragingly. We pile out of the Waldorf and into black and yellow cabs. I pair up with SDLI and a couple of Merrill associates. Tell the cabbie we're heading downtown while drunkenly gesturing north. There's an immediate rush of testosterone from the three of us at the proximity to a single woman in the cab. Everyone starts talking at once. I need to pick up my game and fall back on an old favorite to keep her attention. I say I'm going to guess three things about her, and she can tell me if I'm right or wrong about them. By the third, her leg presses hard against mine, and my confidence in the evening skyrockets. I turn to the Merrill guys and ask them what they do. They're in their mid-twenties and in the worst part of the investment banking rat race. The most horrible part of their job is a single tyrannical managing director who makes their days hell. He's heading downtown in a limo he'd hustled my mentor into, leaving the associates to find their own way to the restaurant. All four of us get on well. We're instantly attracted in the way you can only understand when you're in your 20s. We wind down the windows and the city pours itself inside, enriching our conversation. I don't tell them I'm one of their bank's biggest accounts. We get to Gansevoort and roll out of the cab right into another crew. My new friends hold the car door open for a couple of them, and we socialize with the rest while they wait for the next cab. It's that sort of night, when you feel a kinship with even random strangers, just milling around, hanging on to the last of the summer. SDLI is talking to a couple who have clearly just hooked up. He has lipstick on his ear. She looks over to me with a sly wink, and I give up a shy grin back. One of the Merrill associates pulls me into a bro hug and introduces me around. They ask where we're going, and I say, right here, pointing down the steps. The new crowd has a fundraiser to attend, but they say they'll come back when they can. 
Half of us had no cell phones, and it's too hard to swap numbers anyway. Somehow, we would all just find each other in those days. No texting, no social media. Voice calls cost like a dollar a minute. Everything happened face-to-face, spur of the moment. A lost art. The crowd floats away through the slipstream, while the four of us stand together and take in the evening. We let the time stretch out luxuriously. Then I turn and we go down the stairs, and it feels like we're in a real tapas taverna in Spain. The waiters are hustling around self-importantly in their black vests. It's dark and bustling, and people are talking over each other. And it's going to be hard to find room for all four of us, but we'll make friends with strangers. And SDLI squeezes my hand, showing me the night ahead, and it's going to be a blast, and I can't wait. Then I see my mentor and the executives from the conference. To be frank, this is not the right bar for them to be in. It's subtle, sophisticated, for the New York lifers and intelligentsia, those who are in on the joke of the city's pretensions and observe it with an air of detachment and insider ridicule. They're all Wall Street swagger, expensive suits and confidence. The two junior associates sulk over to take their assigned places next to the MD they'd been complaining about. SDLI gestures to follow them, but the prospect of the night drains out of me. I lag back until one of the locals snorts at my men's warehouse suit, sending me scurrying to catch up. The bankers are totally oblivious to the disdain of the other guests, gathering up the bar stools and taking up all of the free space. Staff complaints are shrugged off by the velocity of money. Seeing me hesitate, my mentor turns away and takes a minute. Tells me this is a make-or-break moment. There are senior executives from several banks in attendance. As the new guy on the trading desk, the introduction will quickly reverberate around the street. Conduct myself well, and I'll have ten dinner invites waiting for me when I get in tomorrow morning. Play my cards wrong? Well, nothing succeeds like success. But you only get one chance to make a first impression. Then his voice hardens. To some extent, I'm carrying his reputation, too. I'd better not screw this up. The surrounding lights shine a little just for me. I raise my chin a little. Together we elbow our way into the middle of the group. He puts his hand on my shoulder and introduces me around. Even with him at my side, it's intimidating. Half a dozen of the top investment bankers on the street, each flanked by associates. The same personalities inside different, aggressive, competing brokerages. I find myself between my mentor and an older Merrill Lynch banker. The Merrill guy raises an eyebrow at me getting between him and his next gin lane mortgage payment, questions where I'm from, and then laughs when I tell him. I shrug that off and try to change the subject, but he has the attention of the group now, and it's not often you get a free ride to humiliate a client without repercussion. He asks where I got my suit, and I'm forced to say the warehouse. SDLI edges closer to someone else, and my mentor grimaces a little. The Merrill M.D. really is being an asshole. And fair enough. He's past his prime, damaged by the business, going through another tough divorce, letting all the crap in his life spill over to roll downhill onto other people. Before we arrive, he'd been tormenting everyone, ordering shots, trying to get two females to hook up. He gestures to the bartender, Hey, make it ten. Ten shots are made up at the bar. The bartender plays a flame over them, blows them out, and we take down the lot of them. A couple of associates make excuses to go to the bathroom, head outside for a cigarette, make a play for the girl in the corner. Out. Eight of us left, 
Another round of shots. Then there were six. This time a tray is brought over. The whole thing is on fire. The waiter blows out the shots. We down them. Two more fall by the wayside. Senior guys this time. They just say no and laugh at the scattered abuse thrown their way. Four fiery shots on the bar. We stare warily at each other. Then there are just three glasses. On fire. My mentor says enough, so it's just me and the Merrill MD. I turn to him and I say, I don't know who you are, and I don't know what you want. If you are looking for sophistication, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have is a very particular set of skills. Skills I've acquired over a very long career of drinking. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let it go now and apologize, that'll be the end of it. Good luck. I order two more shots, Sambuca this time, with a couple of coffee beans floating in them. But I tell the waiter not to light them. He looks disgusted at the lot of us, but likes money too. I bang the shots down on the bar. Then I turn my glass and very carefully take the coffee beans out, dip my index finger, and light it on fire. For effect, I hold my flaming finger up for a moment before using it to set the shot aflame. Then I turn away and down it. It's a neat trick, but you really have to take the coffee beans out first. I toss the lighter to the Merrill MD. I have his full attention, but it's not a good throw and he misses it. Bends over and nearly keels over. I admit to a moment of remorse here, but one of us has to eat the crayons. He recovers admirably, lights his shot, downs it, and goes into a full conniption. His face is literally on fire. Throws himself forward, slams into the bar, and as he bounces backwards, one of the coffee beans goes flying out of his nose. He's on the ground, and I think I'm a genius. I look around in triumph and find the girl from SDLI staring at me in disappointment and confusion. I decide it's time to regroup in the bathroom, but my bar stool reaches out to trip me, and I slam into the person next door reassuring them they shouldn't worry that my grandmother was a Mexican chick too and it worked out totally fine. Lose my balance the other way and I fall right on my face, then cut my hand on some broken glass as I attempt to rally to my feet, taking out a couple more stools. I wander sideways for a time, then see a welcoming cab, and a moment later, my apartment door handle hits me square in the face. When I stumble into work the next morning, all the phones are ringing and my mentor stands up and greets me with a handshake.